the opinions expressed on this show are solely those of Jeremy Hinks and Stinky Jazz Podcast and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else on this planet. And hello, everybody. Welcome to Sticky Jazz. I'm your host, Jeremy Hanks, the man of a million musical opinions, all of which happen to be correct. And uh, this week, we are still in the Pride Month, and I'm going to be plugging for, again, Wunderkex, W-U-N-E-R-K-E-K-S dot com. It's uh, a group, a gay couple who make fantastic cookies that didn't last long here at my house. If you want some great cookies and to donate to a good cause, you can buy a Wunderkeks. They donate some of their proceeds to helping LGBTQ youth. And also, if you like us and what we do here, check us out and consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash sticky jazz. Every little bit helps. Now this week, we have Phil Crosby, the modern-day crooner, uh, jazz musician, and amazing vocalist. He's the grandson of Bing Crosby and the son of Phil Crosby, obviously, that's he'd be Phil Crosby Jr. We were talking about his new album that's called Crosby Does Crosby, and he's kind of tight-lipped about it, but uh, it will be coming out shortly. But uh, for now, I've got some of his work, his song. Uh, he has a Christmas album out. It's amazing. He's putting some new work out. But let's just go off with this one. Just to give you a taste of this guy's talent, here is Silver Bells off of Phil Crosby's Christmas album. So let's all sit back and do the Christmas Sticky Smooth Jam. It may bring parties or thoughts emotional Whatever happens or what may be Here is what Christmas time means to me City sidewalks, busy sidewalks Dressed in holiday style In the air there's a feeling of Christmas Children laughing, people passing, meeting smile after smile. And, and on, on every street corner, you hear silver bells, silver bells, silver bells, silver bells. It's Christmas time in the city. Ring a ling. Hear them ring, hear them ring, soon it will be Christmas Day. City street lights, even stoplights, like a bright red and green, as the shoppers rush home with their treasure. Hear the snow crunch, see the kids bunch. This is Santa's big scene And above all this bustle You'll hear Silver bells The corner Santa Claus Silver bells He's Busy now because It's Christmas time In the city Ring-a-ling It fills the winter air Hear them ring you hear it every Soon it will be Christmas Day City Silver sidewalks, busy sidewalks Dressed in holiday style In the end there's a feeling of Christmas Children laughing, people passing Meeting smile after smile Very soon it will be Christmas Day. All right, everybody, welcome to Sticky Jazz. I'm Jeremy Hanks in the Sticky Jazz studios here in Salt Lake. 
Uh, on this week, I have Phil Crosby Jr. He is uh, down in, uh, well, you're down there in, Col- in, uh, in Los Angeles, right? Right here in Hollywood. Right there in Hollywood. He is a uh, modern-day crooner singing in the style of his grandfather, uh, Bing Crosby, who, well, we all know who that guy was and who he influenced, you know, and the Sinatra era and everything up until now. So it's quite an honor to to have uh, a, a third-generation legend of the music industry as, as, as a vocalist here on the show. So welcome, Phil. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. My so, pleasure uh, to be here. Yeah, well, actually, I was talking just a moment ago. I was talking about that. Uh, there's that group called Famous Pictures, and they they put up a link of you performing uh, with the Golden Age All Stars at the Cicada Club, and that's the stuff that I was really jamming out to over the last couple of days. It's a very good uh, concert film, actually. The Cicada Club gig there. Uh, it's like two angles, and it sounded great, like a, a really decent audience feed. And uh, it, honestly, the visuals on there looked like it could have been pulled straight out of the 1950s, the way everybody was dressing and dancing. Um, but I don't—I guess you don't know about that uh, video that's out there of you. But yeah, I'm going to need – if you could send me a link to that, I would be really interested in, in seeing it. Oh sure, I'm wonder- yeah, it's yeah, it's. Uh, I'm wondering who it was. It might be this girl. Uh, well, you, uh, you 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 had this Italian girl, yeah, yeah, and then you sang "I Can't Take My Eyes Off You" with Giuliana. The uh, that's right, yeah. That's right. Uh, I, I got to say, by the way, um, uh, compared to Giuliana, you look short. I don't know if it was her heels or what, but uh, well, this she is a tall Russian woman. She is a tall Russian woman. And as the as the joke goes, I, I've been looking at your your profiles when I'm like, this guy has the most awesome hair of the entire millennium. Okay, you have it. You you have the best hair of anybody this time around. So, well, you, you know, it's a funny thing because as as days go by, I grew out this this COVID hair that I got, and I really don't know about cutting it. I mean, I, I'm trading in my 1940s look for a different look, but you know what? Um, until somebody comes along and says, listen, we got a, a high paying contract and we want you to look a certain way. Why not have some hair? I, I like to show off the fact that my age, I got a good head of hair. Uh, well, if you it, I don't actually mine, uh, mine, mine all went down the drain in Paris uh, 20 plus years ago. So, well, that's why you sport a cool, like shaved head look, man. Yes, you gotta go. Is, in, in, indeed. Yes. I'm, I'm sporting the, the shiny here. Um, play, play to your strengths. We say in show business. I well, uh, actually, I don't know. If, do you know Faith No More? Do you know those guys? Um, oh, that's my generation, basically. I I came up in the grunge era. That's okay. Like, so uh, I high was school band almost. I was interviewing Roddy from Faith No More with his boyfriend, and uh, he, I, you know, I, I met you opening for Billy Idol. He said, "I think I remember you." Yeah, you you were wearing a wig that night, right? I was like, "Ouch! Oh, ow!" You know, he was. Uh, he was funny about that. Yes, I I do have the the shiny thing going here. Um, well, hey, my 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 favorite person was a man that uh, actually married into my family. He was my stepfather. He was the actor Jack Klugman, and uh, from Quincy and the Odd Couple. And uh, uh, we still have a couple of his rugs. And let me tell you, like uh, they're good looking pieces, man. I'd put them on myself right now if I. He wore a rug. He did. He did. He wore uh, those Quincy's back in, maybe not back in the odd couple days, but in the Quincy days he did. But, you know, they look good. Well, my my dad wore a rug and he put, he, he spent, this is back in the 70s, right? He spent thousands on his rug and it was really good. But if you, if you got up close, you could tell, but I never knew Klugman was bald. That's interesting, man. That's uh he, well, of course he probably could afford the really nice ones, you know, he did. I, in fact, I had a friend that was like wanting to um, acquire it. I'm like, I don't know if I want to give you my stepdad's hair, dude. I'm like, <laughs> I, I like you, but I don't like you that much. Well, it, it, like Chuck Heston, he wore a rug for years. And it, it, it like, I remember one of the last times he appeared publicly, it was a very bad one. You know, I thought with all the money that Charlton Heston had, why is he got that really crap rug on? If you if you saw that movie Bowling for Columbine, there was that segment there and he had this really crap rug on, you know. Um, well, I think they at some age they lose their uh, reference, I guess. 
I, I, I mean, trust me, I live in Hollywood here in LA. We, we have, you'll see some of these seniors walking down the street. They've had so much work and they, they wear so much. I, I used to go to an open mic in Beverly Hills uh, with this guy named Skippy Lowe, who was himself. In fact, he was the, uh, the uh, Martin Short's uh, character, the, the, uh, I forget his name anyway, was based on Skippy Lowe. He was this Hollywood uh, you know, legend, this little man. Anyway, he had this crazy uh, open mic in, in Beverly Hills. And the, the women and the people that showed up there, I mean, some of them were amazing, these elderly like entertainers from the old days, and they were just really inspiring. But some of them just looked like you were like, wow, how can you go out? You know, this big hair and just all this makeup and lots of uh, facial work. It's like, well, I don't know. Hold back a little bit. Oh, yeah. No, I, I've seen... Uh... I've seen a lot. Yeah, I've seen <laughs> yeah. a lot of it. I mean, we all have. But there's the joke. Uh, let's see that. You know, like like what is it? You know, that's happened more times than Michael Jackson's been under the plastic surgeon's knife. Uh-huh. Comma. That's happened more times than Liz Taylor's been married. Comma. You know, I mean, just just fill it in. But yeah, man, uh, the the plastic surgeons in Hollywood. Actually, completely off tangent. I had a friend. Uh, she was the uh, plastic surgery the post-surgery cosmetic consultant to the stars. Mm-hmm. And it was the craziest thing going to movies with her. Cause we'd be watching. She'd be like, Oh yeah, did her. Yep. Did him. Oh, his chin's looking pretty good now. <laughs> like what the hell, you know, but she said uh, like right after they had their surgeries, she would walk them through how to apply the cosmetics to look relatively normal while they were in recovery. And man, that girl had that girl made a lot of money over the years. I tell you what. So I mean, Hollywood's still alive in Tinseltown, you know. So, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but so uh, who is that singing in in that that gig that you played with Juliana that night? Uh, you had that Italian girl. Ah, that is Maria Elena Infantino, and she's the she's the daughter of a man named Luigi Infantino who was a famous Italian uh, opera singer. In, in fact, I think he was like somebody's mentor. Now, he was he passed away a long time ago. In fact, I think, you know, Maria Elena was like his, he had a child in his later, later years. She was one of those children, you know, like probably had an 80-year-old dad or something. Um, so uh, she's a great singer. Her mother was a, a, Italian, or not, uh, she, a Bulgarian opera singer. So she's half Bulgarian, half uh, Italian. She's been stuck over in Europe. She's been all over Bulgarian television. So she's doing a lot with her career right now, but she's, she loves, you know, she was really close girlfriends with Doris Roberts. We used to all hang out and uh, a guy named Jack Betts. Uh, Anyway, so that, yeah, we, we always do shows together and we wanted to do something that was like high society, which I ended up doing something similar to that theme in New Zealand, but uh, we still want to do something like that where, you know, we borrow a little bit from my grandfather's, wonderful film uh high society and uh if i actually i'll be producing um like a broadway uh or a, a staged somewhat staged version of it in new zealand uh probably later this year or next year we'll be doing that well so yeah i heard her singing and her speaking french she actually has an amazing accent uh of, of both english and french i was like okay so she is italian she's italian but she speaks french fluently and she does actually one of her main like things she does is an Edith Piaf tribute. I would love to hear that, man. Tell, tell yeah. her I want to hear that, okay? If you next okay. time you talk to her, yeah, tell her so. I will, I will. Well, look her up, Maria Elena, Elena Infantino, and she's uh, she's wonderful. She she did a lot of stuff in Beverly Hills at the Sofitel. That was like her kind of residency, and I was always over there doing shows with her, and I've had her at Skata Club several times. So uh, probably have her back there. Skater Club's going again, and they want me back sometime soon. So, and I've, I'm going to definitely have Juliana because uh, <laughs> Russian Juliana is uh, is a favorite of Maxwell DeMille, who's the uh, um, kind of runs the Skater Club. So, uh, yeah, we'll have her too. So you got you got to check out her. Well, that, but that evening was, I mean, as far as the two vocalists go, because she sang just the way you look tonight, and her French was just gorgeous, right? You know. And mm-hmm. I can't take my eyes off you with Juliana with both just knockout performances. And well, I'm glad that, you like actually, it. so that was what made me think, okay, this guy's really standing up to the expectations of his name was to see that performance, to be honest. That oh. was where I thought you you really were living up to your father and grandfather's abilities there. 
So. Well, I appreciate that. Maybe I should rethink uh, if you want to play it because uh, <laughs> it was a while ago, and it's, it was not a song that I normally perform, but I did it, you know, for Juliana's sake because she uh, she was a strong number for her. I mean, it's not really a jazz standard, so it was, it was brand new for me. I still have the music for it, though, so it's now technically in my repertoire. Well, my daughter has been playing that uh, I Can't Take My Eyes Off You for the last uh, couple of months. Nice. So I thought that was kind of – because, like, uh, to be honest, the first time I heard it, I was very young. Um, I think I had heard Frankie Valli doing it a couple times, and then I heard the Pet Shop Boys doing it. And I thought right. that was the craziest, you know, they how they mix that. I don't remember the Pet Shop Boys, but uh, – it, that that song because of the Pet Shop Boys came one that I would listen to quite a bit, right? You know, right. and now I, you know, now it's just kind of like I'll just go and play the old jazz stuff or you know just a big band or whatever. But um, yeah, like you guys did it better than Frankie, I'll tell you that. But uh, oh, maybe nice. it was just because uh, I don't know. I, I I knew a guy he worked with Frankie Valley and said he was the biggest ass monkey in the industry. So I, really? I don't know if that was, you know. Boy, he hated that guy. He said, I, I worked with him for five years, and that's the end. I just wouldn't I wouldn't touch the guy with a ten foot pole. So I've worked with I've worked with people I felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, this this guy I just produced an album with is he's on my eternal shit list, I'll tell you that much. Oh, all right. Well oh, sorry, excuse my language. No, 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 no. Are you kidding? I had Roddy from Faith No More on here with his gay boyfriend. I think we don't have to worry about explicit content on this call on this well, conversation. So um so yeah, you you did talk about how in the uh in your early days you you had a well not you still do have a thing for metal. What's what's your metal diet, can I ask? Well, you know, I actually had a resurgence into metal when uh, somewhere around about 15 years ago or so, I realized that I never really listened to much Judas Priest. Now, I mean, I loved Black Sabbath. I loved, uh, I mean, yeah, the most metal I got was kind of Black Sabbath, but, you know, like, um, uh, you know, a little bit of Iron Maiden, but not really much Iron Maiden. I was more of like a, a kind of an earth. Hard rock kind of late '60s, early '70s kind of guy with the. I mean, I like Ozzy Osbourne, but uh, who am I? Something I'm thinking. Deep Purple, Uriah Heep. Uh, I like the the prog rock kind of stuff. Was maybe more my my you know ACDC, but that's not metal. Oh, Metallica. I, we got me and my buddies. We got really into Metallica. Uh, just in, in our late high school, early college, excuse me, years. And then uh, man, I got super into Judas Priest some some time ago, and uh, boy, I listened to the heck out of that. I, once in a while, I'll still uh, I, like I'm, I'm doing acoustic music, acoustic guitar now, so I've got a, a little number I do um, that um, jo Joan Baez song uh, that they covered, um, "Diamonds and Rust." I, I do I do like kind of a acoustic version of their version of "Diamonds Diamonds and Rust" now, but yeah, you know, kind of I'm a bit of an old school guy. Well, so it, th this is like what, what's funny because th this story is kind of legendary, apparently for me. I I loved metal until Guns N' Roses and Metallica really took the scene, and then I kind of like had to take a step back. I went and saw Faith No More opening for Metallica, and I left during the Metallica set, which nobody can comprehend why I would have done that. Because um, Faith No More were great, but I really couldn't stand Metallica, and. Uh, it's, it's been just like my, my, my metal diet was like, you know, yeah, a lot of Judas Priest to Black Sabbath, uh, Lemmy, of course, yeah, and Iron Maiden, yeah, but yeah, Lemmy is, yeah, well, you've heard the statement, Lemmy is God, well, yeah, actually, yeah, we all have to agree on that one. Yeah, but, I, I, one of my regrets in life is that I never went down to find him at the Rainbow Room and, and go sit and have a drink with him, because apparently that wouldn't have, that would have been something that could have been done, because he used to hang out down there, pretty accessible. Well, one of the best stories I heard about Lemmy is, and I, I won't share the name of who the individual was, but um, just because she, she told me just off the cuff, but she was very young, a teenager playing in a, in a band, and this was in Europe at some festival somewhere, right? And she said, you know, she was 16, maybe 17, and one of those, like, you know, they just threw the band on the bill at a festival kind of thing, you know? And uh, she said uh, she was there drinking a very expensive bottle of scotch. And the record label was supposed to make sure that they were taken care of and didn't get drugs and drunk and stuff like that. Right. And she said uh, 
nobody was being anywhere, you know, near responsible. She's, you know, everyone was just like, here, here's the drugs, here's whatever. And I thought that was, a, you know, she said, and then Lemmy walks backstage one night and goes, Roy, love, you've had enough. No more for you tonight. And he yanks the bottle of whiskey out of my hand and, and, and left with it. And she said, you know, out of all of that that was going on, Lemmy was the only one being a, a responsible adult nah. to me. And nice. I said, you know, he went and drank it. She said, of course he did. <laughs> you know, <I'm> just, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Lemmy was was great. I I just found like around Metallica time that everyone was like uh, Axl Rose was trying to sound like the Bee Gees with a, with a cat having its legs sawed off. And mm-hmm. Metallica was trying to sound much like Cookie Monster vocally, right? So I couldn't get into right. that uh, until just recently, actually. There's a... There's a, a label called Seasons of the Mist, and they got a lot of really good metal speed bands. And then who's the other one? Um, Napalm Records out of Poland have got some crazy good metal there, too. So I, I feel like I can get back into, you know, listening to that stuff again. It's, it's just been a long, dry spell after, you know, again, yeah. I just couldn't get into the Metallica thing. But, yeah, I agree with you on Lemmy there. With me, Metallica, like when we first heard about Metallica, they had not quite really broken wide yet. And it was like, I remember watching a video of one of their concerts and going like, holy shit, this looks like the real deal. Because like, remember, this is when Poison and, and Motley Crue were all, you know, the real hair bands were dominating everything, right? And I just remember feeling like this is like real roots, you know, whatever, kind of really... And then, of course, it wasn't not long after that. Then we got really into their older albums. But then, not long after that, they came out with that black album, and I did not. I have not liked them actually since that black album. I liked their early stuff. You know, I thought it was pretty cool. So I don't know if you remember Testament, but they were the band. I, I always say that Testament were the band Metallica always tried to sound like. Ah, uh, maybe I need to listen to them. Oh yeah, you got to get into them. Yeah, I remember. They, they, I know the name, but I don't get into. Oh yeah, Testament are fantastic. Okay. So, okay. Um. So let's see, it, it, you, you talked about you, you were an actor as a young pup. Uh, what was, I mean, okay. Trying to, to keep the family thing going, I guess uh, yeah. with, with Jack Klugman as your stepdad, I guess that was probably a little more in the acting direction, but talk about that. So talk about Jack as well, a little bit, if you can, you know, just open the store for a couple of minutes, go ahead and talk. Well, actually my mom uh, didn't marry Jack until, well, they started dating when I was a senior in high school, my mom and Jack. Um, and then they didn't, uh, marry for like 15 years after that or so, uh, he, you know, it was a long drawn out thing. Oh, I'm not going to marry you. And then, you know, she stuck it out. He tried to kind of, you know, spook her a few times. And then finally, when he married her, he said, yeah, God, I feel so good. I wish I'd married you a long time ago, you know, but anyway, um, with my, with me, my acting, see, my mom was an actor. In fact, she first met Jack on the set of Quincy. Uh, just briefly, and then you know they. You know, she used to work at a, a, a nightclub, a Beverly Hills private membership club, uh, and uh, you know they had a discotheque. It was called uh, Pips. In fact, she, it was at Pips that she actually met uh, Dean Martin. And not a lot of people know this about, but I lived in Dean Martin's house when they were secretly engaged for about four months. And when I was three years old, I lived with Dean Martin and my mother in in his beach house in Santa Monica. And he used to call me the kid. Like it's like right out of a movie. Of course, I don't really. The only thing I remember, actually, he used to tell me to go get him cigarettes because he was always smoking. And he was like, he, I remember him sitting in his bedroom upstairs and he had cartons of cigarettes all over the place, but he didn't have any in the bedroom. And I remember him asking me, hey, hey kid, go you know, grab me a pack of smokes, you know. And I told him, you can't tell me what to do. You're not my father. You know, I did that, that, that stereotypical thing. But he was a really great guy. It just didn't really work out with my mom. He was older and, you know, he'd been. Um, my mom had been, you know, been with my father, who was a drinker and and whatnot, and I think she, uh, he, he wasn't really ready for a little boy in his life anyway. So they didn't end up getting married. But so my mom got me into acting because she was into acting. And in fact, I wish I someone had pushed me more to, into singing at an earlier age. But she pushed me into acting, not pushed me, but you know, she was a little bit the Hollywood mom. I I, I reached to go out on on these auditions. We called them interviews. And I could, I, I remember brief, uh, faintly some of the other child actors uh, that would later on be all over the, uh, the television and film because I would see them in these little audition rooms and they were all bratty and they all had these terrible moms. But my mom was pretty cool for a Hollywood mom. So anyway, uh, I did some acting during, uh, uh, I, I, I got a bunch of parts on television and I almost was on a, on a talk sh- uh, soap opera. I think it was uh, General Hospital. Uh, anyway, it, you know, it was tough cause you, you, you got to go to a lot of these things. And I, you know, it, my mom would take me away from, you know, playing with friends after school to drive around Hollywood, uh, 
you know, looking at all the like prostitutes on Hollywood and Vine back in the day, and this is the 1980s, I'd be like, Mom, what are they? What, what's this man with with really short shorts doing standing here on the corner? And and she was pretty progressive. She's like, well, that man is a male prostitute. Oh, okay. You know. Anyway, that was my childhood growing up in Hollywood. But one day I finally just said, you know what? I, this doesn't make me happy. I don't really want to do it. So I got out of act. And then, so... I became know. a... Nor I, I was a normal kid up until my first year out of high school. I didn't do music. Didn't Never thought I would be a singer. I was a shy kid. Uh, and then some guys, I, I, I hung out with a marching band because I was kind of a geek in school. So I had a lot of friends in the marching band and they were also learning some jazz, you know, so they were, they, they knew they were playing guitar, electric bass, you know? Uh, so they, they, they decided to put together a little like jazz rock fusion band and they asked me to sing. And I was like, why do you want me to sing? And, and they were kind of like, duh, you're being Crosby's grandson. Of course you can sing. And I thought, well, you know, and really what ran through my mind is who doesn't want him to try to be a rock star. And I thought, okay, so, but we did mostly like, uh, we did like Doobie Brothers and we wrote some original songs that were kind of fusion, but we did a lot of prog rock type stuff, a little bit of Doors, you know, I, I was, even then I was a bit of a crooner, so I liked doing the Jim Morrison stuff. And we, 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 we performed on the Sunset Strip, the Roxy and the, and the, uh, the uh, whiskey and the coconut teaser when it was still around and, uh, you know, parts of the Valley, we did the, not the Palladium, the palomino and uh a few just uh after a year of that though i was like God, this town it, live music back this is in the early 90s you know it was really tough to be treated with any respect you know you really had to uh yeah as a band you know and we had some cool bands that we worked with and opened up for and stuff um but uh finally i i did quit that group and kind of went back to normal life i uh, really i just traveled around the world and it was it wasn't until i was just almost 30 years old that I decided I would uh, try singing music similar to my grandfather. Well, what I've noticed is, um, and again, this is so you can, you're, you're not trying to rest on the laurels of your dad or grandfather. You're, you have the voice and the talent on your own. You, you don't sound enough like your grandfather to say, Oh, he's just trying to sound like, you know, and, and you're, you're doing well there. Uh, like I've met, not met, I, I've covered uh, like Lola Lennox. She's Annie Lennox's daughter. Um, absolute sweetheart. And she can stand on her own as well. She sounds somewhat like her mom. Obviously she would, but she's not trying to. And, you know, she's, she's doing it on her own and she's doing fantastic that way. And I, you know, listening to your stuff, I'm like, okay, I can see you have that. Uh, that vibe that you grew up with, obviously from your father and what him and his brothers were doing, but uh, you're obviously, you're also able to do your own, which. Well, uh, I, actually, I, I'll have to correct you. I really didn't grow up listening to a lot of my grandfather's like good, good material, you know, white Christmas, which is obviously famous. <laughs> it's a great song, but it's not like jazz, you know? So right. I didn't listen to a lot and I didn't listen to my, my in fact, my father passed away after that happened is when I listened to his recordings. Uh, you oh, know, we you weren't didn't really listen close. to your dad growing up. No, not at all. In fact, I, I hardly knew, I hardly knew he made any recordings. I knew he, cause you know, most of his career was just uh, performing with his brothers, with in, his brothers uh, yeah. in Las Vegas in a live show. So they were like, and, and he also worked with Bob Hope uh, during the Vietnam war. In fact, my mom said, my mom sang with the USO as well. Uh, she's not very good at a singer, but um, she went to Vietnam with my father when they first uh, got together. But um, no, I, I, I grew up just with blues and rock. And, and to tell you the truth, it's taken me quite a few years to learn and to kind of absorb and, and get the sentiment, the correct kind of like sentiments behind singing this kind of music. And it became like, it ended up becoming a labor of love. And it wasn't, you know, when I first started, if I'd have known how much work it would have been to even satisfy myself with delivering this kind of music, I might have chosen a different kind of tack, you know, or, or uh, path. But uh, I mean, I'm glad I did because I, f I fell in love with, with the Great American Songbook and jazz standards. And, and I did find out that I do have a real knack for it, but it was really more of a, you know, obviously whatever genetically, you know, helped my grandfather with this kind of music, I do share that. So. 
you know, at, at times I've tried to to learn a lot from him, but I could never be an imitator of him because my heart is still, I'm kind of a rock and roll guy at heart. And it, it, only now in this recent last several years have I had the confidence to sing in such an open and, uh, you know, sustained, I, you know, I, I never wanted to sing a long sustained notes, even though I did some classical training and I did a little bit of opera. I just, you know, it was, it's just coming from a different generation where like, I'm like the blues and the, the I call it the wail and moan kind of sound is a lot different than the crooners or the, the uh, Broadway singers, you know, open uh, tone, you know, it's, it's just a t totally different kind of approach. So I've had to really study and spend the time to, to change my sound, to adapt to this kind of music. But at the same time, I'm not someone who totally adapts themselves. So myself filters through it. And then, you know, basically everybody says you have a really unique and original sound, but it's not so much me saying I'm going to be original. In a, way, in a way, I wanted to, you know, be successful with what I was doing. So I wanted to sound more like my grandfather, but I'm, I'm just not able to be him. So even in the attempt of learning from him, it, it ends up being colored by my own myself. You know? So uh, you, you, you did mention that when we talked before, you said that there were so many, uh, how do you say this, that you, you weren't ready to start releasing or making the sound that, that you are now for quite some time and that you, you kept going back on it. I guess that fits along with the story of you trying to just kind of well, pull your identity into, you know, put, like create your own sound as your identity there. Um, well, you know what? Singing is such a personal thing. And it, it, that's, that's why you have one person who just naturally sings amazing and never seems to need any kind of instruction. And you got another person who can study for years and years and years and years and still not have that same, like, it's a very personal thing. It's, there's, it's a, a lot about like, you know, you know, your own inhibitions and your own mental blocks that you have to overcome. You know, it's, it, but it's a, it's a wonderful journey to take. And, and, uh, you know, it's, you can just open up yourself more and more and find new ways to, to express yourself. And then you find the more you trust yourself and express yourself, the better you sound. And the more unique your sound, the more people will respond. It's, it's pretty interesting stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. Unless you're Lemmy, then you just are. At the beginning, well, the end all yes. be all of individual there. So. Well, I'm sure we all imagine Lemmy, you know, coming out of his mom's womb looking like Lemmy, you know, just a little Lemmy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I don't think anything. Thanks, mom. Changed, nothing changed about Lemmy from <laughs> no, you know, no. his whole life, I think, you know. And um, not. It's a good. It's actually good when you when you when you got a good uh, brand, you stick with it. That's another. That is good advice. Oh yeah. So, oh yeah. No. He. Yeah. Anyway, um, one of the things that I and, and again we had talked before of the punk and the new wave stuff. The people that you'd like to work with. I mean, I like you said. You know, I, I was going to ask: Are there too many people that are still expecting you to sound like your grandfather? Uh, I mean, you do have some of that technique, obviously, but um, do you still have that? Or, or is that kind of one of those things you're, you're trying to push to the side because you, you've got you know, too many people asking it of you? Or? It, it depends sometimes. Uh, sometimes I'll get booked for a gig overseas, like in England. And the way they'll promote it is they'll get a few, you know, of the elderly crowd and elderly people can be just really happy to be entertained or they can show up and be like, you know, I want my, you know, 15 quids worth, you, you little bugger. You know, so it's like they sometimes they'll come and they'll sit and they'll be like, hmm, well, he doesn't sound like me, you know. Uh, but what I found is as the years go by and I get better and better and better, I get a lot less of that. I get people going, well, you don't sound like Bing, but wow, you're good, you know, or you're great, whatever. So yeah, it's it used to be more of an issue than it is now, and uh, and I'm happy, you know, that it's coming this way because I'm just I'm happy that I'm in something where personal growth equivalates into more respect and admiration or appreciation and all that all that kind of stuff. So so no, it, it's actually uh, it's something I struggled with, yes, but I struggled with not. It wasn't just don't sound like being. I struggled with do you even have the right sound for this kind of music. And, and to tell you the truth, I hear a lot of really, really amazing voices, highly trained singers. They do a jazz standard and I go, eh, it's not right. You know, I, I hear Broadway voices do a jazz standard. I'm not even real. I mean, I think Lady Gaga is a fantastic singer. I don't like her doing 
uh, jazz standards. I don't like, uh, uh, what's his name's wife? Uh, Elvis Costello's wife. She's great, but I don't know if I like the way she does a lot of the jazz standards. So it, it can be, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm a little finicky, but that's the thing. I've been really critical of myself. So it's been, it's not just other people. I've actually really stre- strove to, to myself be able to be like a great singer of this kind of music. Cause these are like, think about it. When you, who are you going to compare yourself to? You've got, you know, Sammy Davis Jr., Bing Crosby, Mel Torme, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. Those guys, that's, that's the bar. You know, you, if you can touch that, you know, but that's not going to be easy. Lemmy, but that, that's the There's bar. There's Lemmy. Picture, yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, you know what? I do a version of my way that's a little bit uh, Sid Vicious inspired. So you could always throw a little punk in. Well, so uh, actually, I I know uh, a woman. Her name is Miss Durga McBroom. She's an absolute sweetheart. She sings for like Pink Floyd and, uh, you know, her sister. They they both sing for Pink Floyd and the Rolling Stones and all of that. And she actually told me the story about uh, there's a a club they were at in London and her and Lemmy and a couple others just went downstairs one night and they all sang Beatles songs a cappella. And Lemmy Mm. was perfectly in tune. Wow. Story, yeah. So, you know, Durga's, a, oh yeah, the, the, the McBroom sisters. I, I did a show with them. If you want to go back and pull that episode up, those two are amazing women. I love those two. But I, I want to check that out. Well, so um, well, actually they, they've performed with Bowie, you know, you name it. They've worked with them. You know, it, it's crazy who these these two have got on their resume. Nile Rogers, uh, the guys from Earth, Wind & Fire, you know, these two have done it all. And, wow. uh But I, I was going to say, so... Uh, one of the best Christmas pieces ever. Now I, I I'm going to let you know, I am the, I am Scrooge. I am. Mm-hmm. I hate Christmas mm-hmm. music. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I've just mm-hmm. heard so yeah. much it over the years and, you know, Mormon tabernacle choir galore, you know, being where I'm from, right. but, uh, uh-huh. uh, everyone's, what's that? What was that? I'm a bit of a Scrooge as well. So, I don't love always. Yeah, go on. Well, so no, but your your work was good. Your Christmas work was good. I can say that. I I've, I'm very picky, but like one of the best Christmas pieces ever, which was crossing generations, was your grandfather and Bowie. Yeah, and I, I'm sure that you're you're very proud to to see that. I mean, I look at that and I just think, you know, that was such a moment and. Um, in, in the, even in the punk circles or whatever, we all go and like, yeah, that was amazing. Like everybody looked at that moment as one of those pinnacle cross generational things that they did at Christmas, you know? Uh, well, we, actually, yeah, go ahead. Uh, actually, probably uh, it's, it's not all the money he made or the movies he made or the best selling single of all time, white Christmas. None of that really impresses me about my grandfather as much as, the fact that he, he did that with David Bowie and that he was like tight with Louis Armstrong and they, they mutually respected and had loved and admired each other so much that th- those, those two, those two guys, David Bowie and Louis, Louis Armstrong, you know, and that's the thing, I, you know, I feel a little bit connected to them through my grandfather. And so that's, uh, there's a lot of things for me, obviously to be, be proud of, but uh, yeah, that that's up there. I, and I think it was a great, uh, um, version. I think what they, what really helped is that they wrote because apparently David was not so into that song, and and so they created that uh, peace on earth um, um, segment. So it's like became like a medley. Like that's not really an original uh, Christmas carol. Um, so the peace on earth, you know, all that that was that was written especially uh, for to make to make David happy. And uh, yeah, just cool to see the two of them together. Uh, you know, so there's some of the, the, the is a little stiff. Some of being, my grandfather's a little stiff, you know, but again, he became very conservative in his late years. So I'm not sure what they told him about David or, and or Ziggy or whatever, you know, who knows what was going on there, you know, or they might've been already connected through like, you know, I don't know, weird secret societies or the Bohemian club or something. <laughs> who knows? I don't know. Well, so who, in in who of the punk new wave world would you like to commune with to perform with? I mean, I would say like I I, I would love to hear you perform with like Holly Johnson from Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I was listening to his work and uh, believe it or not, I some of the early Frankie Goes to Hollywood stuff came up too. Like me, it made me think of those times of. 
uh, you know, the big band kind of thing or, or the, 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 the jazz that you're moving into. Frank Hills to Hollywood did some of that. It was just fantastic. And listening to your work, I was like, man, him and Holly Johnson would be just an amazing performance right there. I don't know if you were much into that type of thing or um, like, uh, oh, shoot, uh, Martin Fry from ABC was also really big into that sound. And, you know, I, I'm just, you know, visualizing it in my head that you'd be performing with these guys thinking that would be amazing that, you know, I think it would. What's that? Go ahead. I, I fully agree with you. I would work with those guys. I mean, I'm pretty easy going. I like to work with uh, anybody really cool and see what happens. I do a lot of collaborating as you've seen with Maria and with, with Juliana. Uh, yeah, I think we have a mutual friend with a connection in the Dead Kennedys, so maybe that'll uh, that'll pan out. I would, yeah, I was going to say, what would you go and sing with uh, the Dead Kennedys? Uh, uh, I mean, do you know Darren, right? Is that who your buddy's with? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, if, if we're that tight uh, yet, but, you know, we'll, let's see. But, of course I would. Of course I would. I, I have a great respect for those guys. I, I met Jello Biafra once up because, I, you know, I, I, in my real crazy hippie days, I was part of Earth First, so I, I was up in northern. I used to live in the Emerald Triangle, uh, uh, Northern California, Humboldt County. So we did a lot of work for saving the what was called the Headwaters Forest, and uh, that was you know, virgin old growth uh, redwoods, right? So Jello Biafra, he came up to some of our uh, um, demonstrations and marches, and I, I, I got to meet him uh, once upon a time, along with. Julia Butterfly Hill and uh, guys from the Grateful Dead and all that kind of stuff. I used to follow the Grateful Dead band around and be a real, really wacky kind of guy. But um, yeah, man, I, that's the thing. I'm, I, I think they would kind of dig me too. If anybody's going to do, you know, anybody that does my kind of music, you know, I would be the one they would want to work with because I'm, I'm a punk and rock guy in my heart. And I'm just happened to actually have learned really well how to do uh this uh, music of uh, yesteryear or more yesteryear mm -hmm. i mean like when when bono introduced his fans to sinatra by doing i've got you under my skin right was mm -hmm. was a great number there uh you know it's like hey guys there's this whole genre of music you might listen to us as you too but look man here's sinatra that you know we all should get into he pointed that out you know he, he talked about just being with Frank and getting drunk and spilling water all over his his pants and everything. I mean, just he told great stories about all that. Just to do that to get his current fan base to go and start listening to Sinatra to think you know there's something else out there other than just you know you two doing Zoo TV type of thing. Uh, right. Oh no, man. He he's a he's an influence as well. I grew up listening to Bono sing. Uh, yeah, he's got he's got his own kind of style of uh, crooning and belting. I, I I always I've always dug him, even though I, I mean I didn't really like their like most recent albums that much. But I really shouldn't be talking crap anymore. I've already ruined it with Elvis Costello. Now I'll never work with him. No, I you know we do those kind of things. But I, I'm actually anybody that sings and plays music to me it has my full support because um, you know I don't I I feel like if you're doing it. It doesn't matter how well you're doing it or you're doing it to anybody's particular taste because you're doing something right if you're just being part of, of making music and telling stories. You know, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a sacred uh, endeavor. I, I appreciate everybody. Well, Bono, like, okay, I'm a U2 fan to a psychotic degree. I've seen him 46 times. Um, I've shot him on multiple tours. Yeah, so, I mean, I wow. have been... Yeah, I'm way into it. But uh, Bono's alter ego. Yeah, he's, he's someone you want to look up. His name is Gavin Friday. If if you want a flip side of Bono, it's that guy, and he's amazing, and he does a really cool jazz style cabaret as well. Gavin Friday, man, go check that guy out. He's a okay, yeah, no, that, that's trippy, good stuff, man. Um, but so you did you mention? Am, am I correct? You recorded on uh, you recorded something on the same mic that Sinatra has. Is that correct on one of those pieces? Yeah, I mean, I don't think those vocals are going to end up on the album, but I did record in Capitol Records' famous Studio A, where, um, you know, not just Nat King Cole, but I think the Beach Boys, maybe Pet Sounds was recorded there, and Michael Jackson recorded there. It's basically like 
It's their most famous studio in the Capitol Records building. Now, I didn't record for Capitol Records. I rented the building out or rented the room out. But um, yeah, but I, I made a request. Could we could you bring in Sinatra's microphone? And uh, we recorded, you know, again, I ended up like wanting to redo those vocals. The bidet was mostly focused on getting the instrumentals, uh, you know, getting the band really tightened together on, on the album. But um, yeah, I did. I saw, I sang through that. So, we'll, you know, it'll be part of a, a bit of a documentary thing that we'll shoot. I mean, that okay. will, uh, that we've shot that we'll release at some point. Wow. So no, you just told me that. I mean, you know, this is, but you, I, I mean, you were there growing up in the great Americana of, of music and, but obviously you weren't like raised to be in it. You know, that's what I I've, I've learned in this conversation was you weren't like, you know, growing up in it constantly had it all in your face. Yeah. I mean, you were there with Dean Martin as a kid and then living with Jack Klugman growing up, but uh, it, it doesn't sound like you were, you know, thrown into this and destined to be who you, who you are now. That's really interesting to. Not at all. In fact, I, I I'm going to do a cabaret show uh, called uh, Finding My Way, which is a bit of a play on going my going my way, which was uh, Bing's Academy Award winning film. So yeah, I, like I said, my mom she thought of Bing, my grandfather, as an actor more than a than a singer. So she wanted me to get into acting, and when I chose not to, I lived a very normal life. I went to public school. I didn't go to private schools. I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. You know, like. We, we, my mother and I, I, I grew up with, you know, like a single child. My, I have an older brother, but he was a lot older. So I grew up like a lot of kids in LA. In fact, my best buddies I grew up with, we were all like, a lot of us were single, single mom kids living in, uh, in the San Fernando Valley, going to public school. I mean, I really lived a normal, a normal life, which I'm, and I'm glad because I didn't turn out like a lot of these Hollywood kids did. But of course that was always there. You know, there's always somebody saying, wow, you're Bing's grandson. That's just amazing. You know, or some old person who would like, freak out when they met me and I'd be like, no, I hate that. But, um, you know, the thing with Dean, that was, that was when I, when I was three years old and my mom started dating Jack and, and I remember that their first date, I took, I took a photo of them for my, uh, my high school, um, photography class, but it was very casual thing. And, and not long after high school, I went traveling around the world and living in, you know, Northern California. I hardly ever saw Jack, you know, so they didn't marry until, many, many years later. So in a way I grew up quite like everybody else, but it, you know, there was always that thing. It was a little bit, sometimes I, I, I didn't want to be anyone to know I was a Crosby. So it did not really dominate my life the way it might have, but it, but it's nice to, uh, it, it did, it did shape who I am though. Well, so, uh, you, you had mentioned a current album and then you shelved it. Mm-hmm. Or at least you got to get it remixed, apparently. But uh, g- give me some, give me a the four one one on that. It, it, you just mentioned it a little bit. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Well, um, um, you know, I, I met a guy who's actually directing the band for uh, Ralph Mal from Happy Days, Don Most. So I was like, hey, you know, hey, you did a great job. You want to do the same for me? And and this has happened to me before with my Christmas album. And you know, guys are like, you know, when I find someone really talented, they look at me and they say what can I get from this kid, you know? And then they end up like taking a lot of my money and leaving me with, with a product that they, they're mostly using for their own promotional, like, look what I did, you know? So, you know, end up spending a lot of money on an album and sometimes it's not really done right. You know, it's very difficult as a singer who's not per se, even though I do play some instruments, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a jazz musician. So I rec- I rely on a lot of, um, other people, maybe, and, uh, you know, not just musicians, but someone to, uh, you know, with a jazz song, you want a great arrangement, you know? So, um, yeah, sometimes it's a, it can be a challenging, uh, endeavor. So I, you know, I had a hard time with this guy and it's been a while, but the thing is, you know, he's, he's great. He was a very talented man and he wrote, uh, like some amazing arrangements. So it's very up tempo, very hip. It's real jazz, but, but it, the songs that I selected are from my grandfather's early years. So they're, they're like, early you know early 1930s gems mm-hmm. done with very modern you know sentimental uh sentiment it's uh, not the word i'm looking for but um it's, you know s- filtered through some really really amazing jazz musicians and we'll call, we'll call it Cros- crosby by crosby is what i'm calling it. it you know what i just you know i just now Took the uh, took the project away from him, and it's all, all the vocals are finally done. So 
uh, all that needs to be done is uh, my new guy will, I was planning to have him master it anyway. So now he'll mix and master it. And uh, it'll be done, I'm sure, within a couple of weeks, or at least I'll have a track to send you. So maybe, uh, you know, you can, you can, you know, air something at, at a later date, if not for this show. Okay. Well, so talk about your writing for a minute. Cause I, I did, did like your writing and your performing. So I don't know if you have ever watched uh, like, okay. Tweaking your style just a tad because you have this ability to present yourself in a timeless manner, you know, mm-hmm. which now that, that is a skill really, that is a very good skill that a lot of people don't. I mean, even Harry Connick couldn't quite nail it, you mm-hmm. know, and you can, and maybe it's just the Cicada Club and, and, and who you work with there, but because you can do this timeless thing, I keep thinking if you just take a couple of steps darker, you could end up in the Twin Peaks world. Oh, and, I love that. And I, I was like, I was just thinking like, wow, him up there with Julie Cruz or something, you know, just in that David Lynch-esque world. And I can see you just getting there very easily. But talk about your writing. Talk about how, you know, just if you talk for a minute, because that was where I was kind of seeing you going a little bit and just going, wow, that would be amazing. Well, I, I compose the occasional number. I, I'm better with lyrics than I am with uh, musical composition. So I'm still looking for people to collaborate with. Uh, you know, I may try, I'm stepping into some electro swing kind of thing with, with, uh, with electronica. We'll see how that goes. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be starting a new cabaret, maybe a residency in Los Angeles at uh, Sterling's upstairs at the at the federal uh, the, the federal bar in North Hollywood. So perhaps I'll be able to do something kind of dark and, and interesting there. But um, yeah, I, I write a song here or there, so we'll we'll see we'll see how, what I do with that. Well, if you just weird it up just a little bit, yep. right? Maybe yep. David Lynch will show up and go. I need that guy, you know. <laughs> well, I, I, whatever I do, I'm going to start doing it really, really loud because, and, and I don't mean that literally, but uh, because I'm ready to be heard by more people. You know, I, I, I've really settled into into my you know strong place. So uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah, it, I still it's it's difficult to get the perfect vehicle, and I, and I'm all over the place. Like I, I'm doing a cabaret show, I'm releasing a swing album, I do swing festivals. I'm also part of a, a, a nonprofit where we're renovating a uh, 1920s vaudeville theater in Pasadena. So I'll be doing shows at this place. And this place looks like something out of a David Lynch, or it will when it's finished being renovated. It's an Egyptian-styled um, Art Deco masterpiece. Really. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. and I'll, so I'll, I'll come be, down and see you there. That sounds oh, great. Yeah. Oh, it will be. It will be. And I'll be, I'll be at the Cicada Club with a 10-piece band uh, later uh, this summer. Um who knows? Maybe have Juliana or Maria there. And, uh, you know, I, I am all and, and now I'm, I'm doing like playing guitar again. So I'm kind of popping out a lot of uh, I'm going into the studio tonight after we're done with this. So, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear you. I appreciate you saying that. So that's going to stick with me. I'm going to uh, I'm going to explore that. Well, like I'm a Twin Peaks freak. Yeah, me too. Right? Me too. And so you you understand like the bar bands in the early episodes and then in 25 years later, and then throwing Fire Walk with me right in the middle of it, you kind of have a foot in all three of those worlds. Right. Almost, I, right? Like, like not just a couple of toes, you're half no, foot no. in, I kind of think, right? And it just. I, I, I did. I, I watched Twin Peaks uh, back in the day. We used to, you know, get stoned and eat donuts and watch Twin Peaks back when it was coming out on TV. Yeah, so it sounds like you and I are close to the same age. I mean, I graduated yeah. in '92, so if uh, you... I'm class of '90. Oh, class of '90. Okay, so yeah, you're you're just a couple older than me. Then mm-hmm. um, I didn't have TV back then, so I'd go to my buddy's house and we'd watch Twin Peaks together. At his I house. like his his morning. Uh, I, I listen on the radio uh, almost every day to his morning weather report. David Lynch. Yeah, he does this thing. You, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, every day he, he just tells the weather in Los Angeles and he, and he says something, you know, interesting. <laughs> it's, it's very, like, it's very David Lynch. It's, it's kind of dry and a little quirky, but, uh, I mean, I think it's every day. Is, what does he say? Uh, have a, you know, uh, I can't remember what he says, but it's pretty fun. Well, so I, I had a buddy who we, we watched uh, fire walk with me. Right. And he thought mm-hmm. that the, 
that you know how he was deaf right in 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 there and so he went and actually found one of those old harnesses hearing aids you know with the the harness and the headphones and everything and he'd he'd walk around the grocery store yelling at the pharmacist about you know embarrassing personal problems and we'd be sitting one one lane over recording it you know but he was impersonating david lynch doing that it was hilarious you know if you remember oh, it, so, hey man we were we were mischievous punk kids man you know we just the, the things we thought were funny i mean they were funny you know but uh well i've got a good harry dean stanton story oh let's hear it man Okay, well, there's a little bit of a backstory I've got to tell. Um, you know, when I first went to Northern California, I met uh, this guy who basically, you know, he was this crazy schizophrenic. I used to call him a street shaman. He was like this new age. And, and he this guy could sing like Bono. He could write songs like, you know, anybody. Like he, he was a singer-songwriter, street, street musician, um, crazy vagabond guy who, I mean, he was like homeless for like 30 years. Now, now he's over on the East coast living with his sister and he's he got some of, he had some health issues he had to take care of because when you're outdoors that long, but this guy was like a maniac. It's hard to kind of sum this guy up, but he was like a genius. He'd be like, he'd walk up to you and he'd be like, I'm channeling these. And he'd, he'd give you this weird horoscope that he created on his own. Um, you know, using all his numerology. I mean, he was like a mad genius, you know, so one day he's in L.A. and, you know, he'd, he'd come to L.A. and he never did well here. He was always, you know, did well, like living outdoors up in Humboldt or in Hawaii on Maui or Santa Barbara. But L.A. was never kind enough for to a street person for him. But he would come down because I was here. And then I'd be like, oh, what do I do with this guy? He's, you know, he never stops talking. He, he would he would, you know, verbally assault people if they said anything kind of weird. But he knew, knew everyone's buttons. So he could, you know, he mostly pretentious people. He could really like fuck over because that's because they were asking for it anyway one day he's with me and, and we went and i sang at uh at not the is it the troubadour on sunset uh or on santa monica down uh i think it's the troubadour anyway uh yeah, there, we met harry dean stanton so i'm like i put my crazy friend and harry dean stanton he was as weird as my schizophrenic crazy friend like nothing not, nothing None of either one of them said made any sense. I was like listening to them both, and they're both having a conversation, and they're <laughs> you can listen to each one, and they're not talking to each other. They're just talking at each other and saying something really random, but it was funny as hell. So I, yeah, Harry Dean Stanton, man, him, and oh, he did some. Well, again, we're talking about David Lynch here, right? So you know he could do whatever, but. Uh, uh, didn't he do something with old John Cassavetes in the old, I'm just, oh, geez, I'm trying to remember all the films I've gotten. Like, Oh, Stanton. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I know he's in cool hand Luke and he's been in a lot, a lot of other stuff, but whether he was in a Cassavetes or not, I'm not sure. Cause I don't think of him. He doesn't really spring to mind when I think of Cassavetes, like main. Um, I'm going to have to go. Well, back I haven't seen everything. Yeah. Cassavetes was an odd duck too, man. Oh yeah, know? oh yeah. But he was like the one guy that could tie Peter Falk up and and get him to where you know because Peter Falk could always have the upper hand on everybody. Really? Cassavetes was the only guy that that could that could get Peter Falk speechless, you know. And that right. was, uh, but uh, I mean, yeah, but don't we all love Peter Falk, man? That guy was. Oh yeah, that's funny that you mentioned him because they, there's something about Cassavetes' energy that always reminded me of Peter Falk. As well as somebody else that I can't think of right now. I almost they looked alike too. Not a director, but uh, an actor, I guess. But I, the, think the, I just the, believe it or not, the hardest role ever that Cassavetes do was um, "Whose Life Is It Anyway" with Richard Dreyfus. Huh. And he played he played a very one sided character, and he did it right. well, but it was very unsettling. Mm. You know, as opposed to all the other crazy work he did, but uh, it yeah. was uh, uh, Richard Dreyfus was a sculptor who was paralyzed in a car accident, and he wanted to just be checked out of a hospital so he could die. And Cassavetes was the doctor who was fighting against it, being able to do that, right. and very yeah, one sided right. character. And but he did it very well. And you know, you know, where you guy who plays the villain or at least the antagonist, and yeah. you say, "Wow, he did it well." and I don't like the guy because of that, you know, at least the character, um, you know, he, right he made you really dislike him. Kind of like when Henry Rollins was in uh, uh, the Sons of Anarchy, right? You know, he he played that character that you just hated. Mm. Um, I 
you know, even though he's a hell of a, of a, an actor and a great guy, you know, is he, but yeah, he played that character that you just wanted it. You wanted them to, to wax him. I don't know if you ever watched Sons of Anarchy, but uh, uh, no, I haven't got into that yet. Yeah, they, they, that, Henry Rollins was in there, man. He did some. He was a. Yeah, he, I like him. He he played this uh, white supremacist uh, Nazi in there, and you just, I mean, he did if he he wanted to make you hate white supremacists, and he did. Yeah, that you, job I, very well. that makes sense to me. I, I read his uh, his in the LA Weekly. I read his uh, article, his um, column. Well, you know, I, I, Casimir, man, what happened with the 70s? Just, I love the, the film and the characters. I mean, the character actors of that era who were just kind of badasses. I mean, I, what, what would they do with the Cassavetes nowadays? They'd try, to, they'd try to put him in a Harry Potter film and make him a fucking <laughs> Harry Potter villain or something. I don't know, man. Well, I, I could have seen, seen Bruce Willis in his early days doing a Cassavetes type film. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love, yeah, at least Bruce is still doing good movies. Yeah, well, I don't know. He did that one Mortal Thoughts with Demi Moore that was like gouge my eyes out with a railroad spike. That was awful. But uh, I think we, that's long enough we can forget about it. Yeah, it's it's like one of those movies that you're like, wow, they should just not have done that. And that was when yeah. they had, you know, whatever. But I loved Hudson Hawk. Actually, yeah, Hudson Hawk and a Swinging on a Star, right? I remember mm-hmm. uh, you did that one of those gigs, right? Swinging on a Star out there as well. Uh. I I tried to retire that song, and yeah. people keep on telling me to do it. So I'm it's it's still make it's still in my repertoire. Obviously, it's in my repertoire, but it's still still being done in in a lot of my appearances. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I, it's a great song, but it's it's just it's hard to really get that song to swing. Not that I, I mean I've been able to do it, but it's just not my favorite. But yeah, yeah it, it is a fun song. It is a oh, very, it won, it won the Academy song. Award. It's an Academy. Yeah. Sorry. Academy so, award-winning song. Um, yeah, no, it was a great number. So, but hey, Hudson Hawk was also just a genius movie. But uh, mm-hmm. I gotta so, see that again. It's been a while. Oh yeah, geez, wonderful. Um, let's see, we're coming up on the hour here. So, oh, uh, if if you want me to grab that uh, that that song with Juliana out of the uh, Cicada show, I'll put that up and play us out with that if you want. Um, sure. All right, everybody. So thank you, Phil, for your time and for the conversation. I'm looking forward to the album getting remixed and coming out. Look, I'm really looking forward to that. And well, I appreciate that. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. So everybody else, take care, be good to each other, and let music do awesome in your lives. No one can take their eyes off. And thank you, Phil, for uh, that amazing conversation. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Everybody, just take a long look at musical history of the great American experience, and you're going to find some amazing work that we've just covered and talked about. Everybody else, have a gnarly week. Thank you so much, Phil. It was a great conversation, and I do look forward to Crosby does Crosby. And just know that it is easy to find wonderful things in life. Just look around. You don't need to look far. Peace out. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes over you. Pardon the way that I stare. There is no words that compare. You be like heaven to touch. I wanna hold you so much And if you feel like I feel Please let me know that it's real You're just too good to be true Can't take my eyes off of you
just too good to be true Can't take my eyes off of you You'd be like heaven to touch I wanna hold you so much And I think that I'm alive And I feel so alive You're just too good to be Thank you, Juliana. It's here for Juliana. Thank you.